It's going to be one of those shows. Instead of a lot to say about a few things, I have a little to say about a lot of things, ranging from court packing to the role of abortion and Christians voting. So buckle in for a very high-paced version of the Corey Truax Show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be happening. And I think you would agree the best thing is that it's happening to you and me. You might justifiably be thinking, hello, sir, uh, if there's a high-paced version of the show, then what is this version I've been listening to for four years or for, for however long you've been listening? Well, all I'm telling you, uh, as I, I know I talk fast. I know I'm high energy. It's one of the marks of my life and my character. So I am just telling you, buckle in. Also, for radio listeners on his radio talk, I am almost positive this is going to be a bonus material episode. So if you only listen to me on his radio talk on Saturday mornings at 8 o'clock, let me encourage you to go find the podcast, The Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts. Now, if you are already listening to the podcast, I'm just telling you, hang on, this, there's going to be a lot to do on the show today. I should also mention that I am the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church, and Beachwood Church meets in Greenville, South Carolina on Sunday mornings at 10.30. It's a ton of fun right now in the book, or excuse me, the Revelation of Jesus Christ uh, that our pastor Doug is going through. So you're invited on any given Sunday morning. You can also find those sermons out on YouTube. I want to do all the following. There is the Hunter Biden story that Facebook and Twitter shut down, and that's two different stories, right? There's the Hunter Biden story, but also what Facebook and Twitter did, and whether or not... There should be action taken against Facebook and Twitter for doing so. Uh, Two or three of you emailed to say you were very vague about how you think we should respond to the idea of court packing. Do you have those specific ideas? Well, yes, I do. I will give you those. I want to talk about the Lindsey Graham race. I'm here in South Carolina just days away from an election. I have some thoughts on that race. And guys, I have a ton more. I, I put out on Facebook... Hey guys, give me uh, give me an idea of what you want to talk about, and a lot of people responded, and so we better get going, or we are going to run out of time. Guys, I'm not even. That's before I even say that I have some things I want to get to about Amy Coney Barrett. Like we're, we're confirming a Supreme Court justice right now, so there's a lot to do. Let's get going. Number one, I want to start with the Hunter Biden story. If you did not get the details, then let me catch you up to speed. The New York Post, the fourth. Highest circulation newspaper in the country published a story that uh, would call into question primarily two things. Hunter Biden's general ethics regarding business and how he was making money, and also Joe Biden being a liar. Because Joe Biden said in either a debate or that was an interview that he never talked to his son about his business dealings. Which, of course, on its face is absurd because you know what fathers and sons talk about? business. Fathers tend to ask sons about business, and sons tend to ask fathers about business. That's one of the things that we do, and so the idea that they just haven't talked about it was absurd on its face, but then the story comes out to specify that that is not the case, that Hunter Biden was using access to his father to make some money for himself. Here's the shortest version. There's a computer dropped off at a repair shop in Delaware. The owner of the Computer shops, computer repair shop says that he cannot positively identify that the person who dropped off the computer was Hunter Biden, but he can say that there's a sticker on it for Bo Biden, the Bo Biden Foundation, and then the information on the hard drive was of Hunter Biden. Lots of information, a lot of it not flattering, some videos that weren't particularly flattering. The FBI got the computer and did some investigation, but the computer repair shop guy, 
also made a copy of the hard drive and gave it to, of all people, Rudy Giuliani's attorney. That was a bad call. Don't give it to a partisan. Give it to a journalistic outfit. That would have been the better call. So here's the New York Post building a story that shows that Hunter Biden, with no qualifications whatsoever, getting paid $50,000 a month from a Ukrainian business, and seems to not be producing anything for them other than his last name is Biden. And then we have emails that show uh, the thankfulness, the gratefulness of someone high up at this Ukrainian company, Burisma, that he's grateful and thankful that Hunter was able to get this guy access to Joe Biden when he was vice president of the United States. And there's also some more evidence of Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, having had discussions about this and scheduling things for a connection. So, which makes, again, Hunter Biden suspect, which doesn't mean the father is suspect. It just means that Hunter Biden is not a good guy. And it makes Joe Biden dishonest about his saying that they don't talk about business. So that's the details of the story. Maybe the more significant thing was this. Facebook and Twitter, which are our ways of communication now, uh, the what was the experience here recently that made me think of this? Oh, yeah, some, I, I was reading a story, and someone, someone wrote about Glenn Beck, uh, that Glenn Beck was uh, banished to the internet and podcasting and YouTube now. And I was like, banished to the internet? What year is it? Are there still some of you who think NBC, ABC, and CBS have any power? What are you talking about? The power is on the internet. So, anyway... My point was, uh, Facebook and Twitter is where the power is. The internet's where we share news now. It's not the television. Uh, there's some folks, I think, that still think we sit around the radio waiting for, I don't know, that's not, that wasn't Walter Concrite, Con, Concrite I'm thinking of. There was somebody else who did radio news. Anyway, uh, William R. Murrow. That's who I was thinking of. William R. Murrow, who gave us the news on radio. So Facebook and Twitter shut down being able to spread that story. If you wanted to put out there on your Facebook and Twitter, and not just random nobodies like me. We're talking about the press secretary for the president of the United States of America, sitting senator, senators and House members, and the New York Post, the fourth highest circulated newspaper in the country, couldn't post that story, and Facebook and Twitter gave really stupid reasons for it, Twitter in particular, because Twitter said, well, this could be hacked material or material that the, someone got and didn't have authorized to give. Twitter, you you also weeks before had the Trump tax returns trending on your site. You guys get to be the ones that choose trending. And those were not obtained in, uh, in a way that the President of the United States said you could do. Now, granted, I don't care. I'm glad you did that. The, the Trump tax returns were important. They should get out there. How much he pays is important. And the American people deserve to know. So I'm glad you did that. Now just be equal. Do the equal thing. We have now some information that's well-reported. It's There's enough fact-checking to let it go, and they tried to block it. Facebook did the same thing. Now, both of them have relented, and that story has made its way into the, uh, into the media atmosphere. So that's the facts of the case. I have some thoughts from it. I also want to shout out to Julian here on the Facebook post that I said, hey, I need some content for the show he brought up part of this discussion. So, number one, from this Biden story for Hunter, are there is there any impact? I don't think so. I think, I think the, the election is basically over except for one group of people. 
There's one group of people who aren't deciding between Biden and Trump. They're deciding between not voting in Trump. They're, they're definitely not Biden voters. Biden has his group. They're set, they're solid, and he's not going to win any undecideds. The undecided group are people like me, although I've made my decision. It's, I'm definitely not voting for Biden. That's absurd. But I don't know if I want to vote for Donald Trump. So that's, there's, that's the one group still sitting out there undecided. And I don't think this changes things for them at all. Only Trump can change things for them, not Biden. So I, th- I don't think it has any real impact, although it should have some impact on the American people to recognize that there is some corruption. That It may not be Joe Biden's direct fault, but a lot of people in his family have used access to him to do some corrupt things and get advantages for themselves. But the bigger impact might be this. It has raised questions of what we do with the social media companies. We're, we're getting to that spot where there's a, a fervor, there's a fever pitch to do something about them from the federal level. This has happened in United States history. It's happened with the phone companies. This hap- So like, remember Southern Bell and all the, the Bell companies get broken up. This has happened with utilities in the past around water and electricity. It happened with the tech bubble and breaking up of Microsoft. There has been precedent that I don't approve of, but there has been precedent of the federal government getting involved and heavily regulating or breaking up major, major parts of the economy that they think are getting too powerful and too significant. Even one of my favorite broadcasters, who I consider to be a, a fairly conservative guy, I mean, Matt Walsh from The Daily Wire is a really conservative guy. He's a limited government, small government guy. He went out on his show and said he's in. He, he's in for heavy regulation of Facebook and Twitter. And I thought he used a bad argument because he basically said this, the free market can't fix this. Unless any, unless any of you have $100 billion you're ready to go spend on starting another social media site to compete with Facebook, to compete with Twitter, then there is no competition that can solve this. Facebook and Twitter are, be- this is his argument, not mine. Facebook and Twitter are being openly partisan. They're run by liberals in Silicon Valley, and they are disadvantaging news, trying to lock down news that would hurt their preferred political candidate. Now is the time to say, no, they can't do that, and we are going to heavily regulate them because the free market can't fix this. I oppose that in totality. There is talk now of repealing a particular regulation from a 1990s law that says internet companies cannot be held liable for what their users say. So right now, the law says that if someone is commenting on Facebook or posting on Facebook or going to an ESPN.com article and commenting on it, Disney, which owns ESPN, can't be responsible for what someone comments. So if someone does something libelous or slanderous or horrific or racist or something on an ESPN comment, Disney can't be responsible for that. The commenter is responsible. Equally, Facebook and Twitter aren't responsible for what people say. And so you can't be, they can't be held liable for what happens there. There's talk about trying to end that. And that turns, turns Facebook and Twitter into media companies. It turns them into the New York Times or CNN or Fox News. And they become editors instead of platforms. Now, Facebook and Twitter, in this decision, were acting like editors. By throttling back that story, they were acting like editors instead of being a platform. They act like publishers instead of being a platform. 
And if they continued with that, maybe you could talk me into it, but this is not one of the normal things they do. This was a rarity, and so I am not for their regulation. Just generally, it's not, it's not a conservative thing. It's not a free market thing. It's not an idea that leans itself towards freedom, and I'm a maximum freedom guy. So before we take this first break, the Hunter Biden story is well-reported. It's something you can count on. And Hunter Biden has been using his father's name. He's been trading his father's name to make a bunch of money and tr- and participate in his very bad habits and sinful behavior. Joe Biden has participated in it by meeting with significant people from this other company, and Joe Biden lied about it. I suspect no one's going to care about that fact. The bigger and important point is what do we do with Facebook and Twitter going forward as platforms? And as, as long as they don't do stuff like this again, I am not on board with regulating them in any way. We, we have these services and we enjoy the internet the way we do because we leave it so unregulated. So let's keep it that way. When we come back, I mean this, guys, it's maybe close to a dozen things to do. We're going to go fast and probably go on into some bonus material when it's all said and done. We'll get started when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act Show. show, I used some very strong language about the idea of court packing. I called it a revolutionary act, essentially a coup, and some of you wrote in to want it and wanted to get some more clarification about how I, th- how I think we could respond to such an action, and so I want to clarify that, for, clarify that for you in just a moment. First, thank you for listening to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk on Saturday mornings or wherever you find podcasts. Thank you for doing so. You can also find me, and I hope you will, find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just look for me, Corey Truax, and you will find me there. We have this election coming up, and I don't know how it's going to turn out at the very top of the ticket, but I do know that the most important races are in the Senate. The Republicans have a map that is advantageous to them. There's every reason for this election to end, and Republicans have control of the Senate. If they don't, some revolutionary acts are being threatened by the left. One of them is ending the filibuster because they would have the votes. The left would have the votes. The Democrats would have the votes to end the idea of needing a 60-vote majority to do in particular things in the Senate. And they would use their 51, 52, 53 votes to end the filibuster and then do things like Pack the court. Add two, four justices. Joe Biden names those justices. That Democratic Senate confirms those justices. That would be one of the options. Maybe they've talked about ending the filibuster and then adding Puerto Rico as a state, adding Washington, D.C. as a state. And I don't back down at all about what I said about the significance of those things. Those are revolutionary acts. Those are starting a brand new government here in these United States. It is ending the Constitution ratified in 1789, and it's starting a brand new one. It is a revolutionary act to do those items. And so what do you do in response? Well, I I know that sometimes I can come off as sarcastic because I am sarcastic, but what I'm about to say is not sarcastic. The the next time a Republican, let's say they did that, They added four seats to the Supreme Court, made it 13. The next time a Republican president has a Republican Senate, 
at 101 seats. Do it. Do nothing else during the term. If you're going to break the government, if this is the new rules, if disgusting gross power is the new rule, you have created a playing field where we are going to have to play. And we will add 101 seats to the Supreme Court. because We're a banana republic now. That's what we're doing. We're going to act like the corrupt governments of Latin, of Latin America. Okay, let's do it. Let's go ahead and add 101 seats. And you think I'm joking, and I'm not. That, I would even want that to be the platform. The Democrats have decided to break the system. We're apparently at, at civil war now without shooting each other. All right, well, now we're at war. And so we are running with the idea of we are, we are going to fix this court because you've, you have broken it. There is a couple ideas from guys I follow out west that talk about governors who have the ability not to remit taxes. There's, so, there's actually apparently governmental processes you have to complete, like the, when for, the, for the federal government to get the tax revenue from states, there's processes to complete. And particularly in Texas, who is a tax-paying state, where I live in a tax-receiving state, we get more benefits than we actually pay into the, to the feds. I'm almost positive that's true of us. Then... Uh, you could talk. You could cause some real damage if Texas and Florida decided no. You're, you've delegitimized the federal government when you added states or you packed the court. You are no longer a legitimate governance, and we are not paying you anymore. And the federal government can respond with where your citizens aren't getting benefits. Okay, well, that's that's the consequence of our action, and that's the consequence of your action because you've delegitimized your governance over what we're doing. Guys, there's a movement in Texas that already has the plan set of splitting Texas in two. Splitting Texas into two states, call it west and east, do whatever you want. But if they want to decide to break the system by adding Puerto Rico, which of course shouldn't be a state for at least three or four reasons I can name, and making Washington, D.C. a state, which is again an easy one, why they shouldn't be a state, let's break Texas in two. What I'm saying here is if you break it, if the, if the Senate goes Democratic and they decide to break the system, end the Constitution of the United States in their disgusting quest for power and control over other people, all right, you've started a war. And it's time to fight it. I hope it never becomes a hot war. I hope it never becomes one where people are hurting each other. But if that's what you've decided to do, you've weaponized politics, then the weaponization must return. Uh, there's, there, there has to be another side to that war as well, and I'm not sorry for saying so. That's how it should be, and it will become, it will become very cutthroat in that process. Speaking of the Senate and the importance of those races, I'm getting a couple folks asking about the Lindsey Graham race here in South Carolina against Jamie Harrison, and so I have a couple thoughts on that. I have voted for every primary opponent Lindsey Graham has ever had. Sometimes he's had more than one, and I had to pick one. But I voted for Richard Cash when he ran against Lindsey Graham. I voted for Bill Connor when he ran against Lindsey Graham. I have wanted Lindsey Graham out of the Senate moments after he took the seat. He is not nearly the conservative we should have had. That's how I felt about Bob Inglis in Greenville-Spartanburg area when he represented Greenville-Spartanburg and they got, got eventually beaten by Trey Gowdy. Like, Bob Ingalls would be an awesome re- Republican 
who went, who ran, excuse me, ran and won a seat in Western Pennsylvania because that's probably as good as you're going to get from a Republican in Western Pennsylvania. But in Greenville, Spartanburg, now we should have a very conservative member of Congress, and it shouldn't have been Bob Inglis, and it ended up not being Lindsey Graham. Should not. He's one of the most liberal members of the Senate. He shouldn't be from South Carolina. He would be an incredible center, senator from Michigan, but not here. And then in the general election, I think I've only voted for him once. I think I have left that left it blank most times. I will not be leaving it blank this time. I'm gonna. I'm going to be voting for Lindsey Graham. For a minute there, that race looked tight, that it could go Jamie Harrison's way, uh, but it's not going to. Lindsey Graham is going to win this race, uh, but let me give you some political science for a second. So take outside the partisanship, left, right, Republican, Democrat, just as an interesting piece of trivia and information. This amount of money that Jamie Harrison was able to raise, it's, it's almost $100 million for a state that only has almost 5 million people maybe 2 million people, a little bit less than 2 million people will vote. That kind of money is incredible. It's insane. And so it allows for an, a fun experiment. And that experiment is how many v- votes can you get? Like what's the maximum number of Democratic votes possible in this state? Because I tell you this, Jamie Harrison is going to get it. Whatever the maximum number of available votes is, Jamie Harrison will get those votes. When you add his mobilization efforts, his ad efforts, uh, whatever Democrats and independents who lean left, whatever those people are, they're all going to show up. You're going to get every single one of them to show up for Jamie Harrison. And it's also in a moment of Trump has alienated some Republicans who hate him so much that they're willing to go vote for Jamie Harrison. So he's going to get the maximum number. And what we found in the polling was he got to that number. That number's apparently around 46 or 47, and that's what he's going to win. And that's a fun to know. It's fun to know this is the maximum amount. And I know that that's the conclusion they've come to as well because they started running ads dishonestly and immorally for the Constitution Party candidate, paid for by Jamie Harrison. I had one in my Facebook feed you, you can actually see them sometimes on YouTube. It will say, paid for by Jamie Harrison. And they're trying to get Republican voters not to vote Republican, but to vote for the Constitution Party. I think I was particularly targeted because I am the target audience. I'm not inclined to vote for Republicans just because they're Republicans. And so I am given to the idea of voting for whoever you think is best, even if they have no chance. So I see a lot of those ads, and that's it's dishonest, it's immoral to do that. But that's their, their new strategy. They know, as it stands, we're going to get 47% of the vote at the absolute most. So what's our next option? Well, we have to diminish the number of votes Lindsey Graham is going to get. And they're not going, they're not going to get there. Uh, so that's my vote. That's my thoughts on the Lindsey Graham race. I, I wish we could actually have a decently, very conservative person in the Senate from South Carolina. We don't. Although I will say, he has changed after the Kavanaugh thing. He, he said that of himself, that the Kavanaugh confirmation process and seeing how disgusting the left behaved, it changed him. And Lindsey Graham 2.0 has been a better version of himself, but still not what I want to see. All right, so I'm voting for Lindsey Graham. Uh, for the probably the first time in a long time in, in a general election, because I usually just leave it blank. 
what else did I have here? Oh, okay, here's another one I wanted to get to before we start giving uh, you folks who submitted things on Facebook, Kenneth, Matthew, Glenn, Seth, who submitted stuff on Facebook. I want to get to those, uh, but here's one more that I thought of. Regarding COVID-19 and the messaging from companies, businesses, governments, I am utterly finished with the language, let's keep everyone safe. Keeping everyone safe is the language. It is one of the weirdest ways to talk about a virus. If you get a virus, you're still safe. If you get a virus that kills less than 1% of those who get it, you know what you are? Safe. You're not healthy, but you're safe. And so I don't mind language that says, hey, you know, when you're in here, put on a mask. Keep everyone healthy. Hey, let's try to maintain distance from one another. Let's keep everyone healthy. Okay, cool. That's language that makes sense. Totally rational. Let's keep everyone safe. All right, you've overreacted in a way that is nonsensical and kind of crazy. If someone gets COVID-19, as I can attest to personally, you're safe, okay? Our utterly unhealthy Diet Coke, uh, Diet Coke addicted, overweight, actually probably obese, 74-year-old president got it and lived, 68-year-old Nick Saban got it and lived. They were safe, right? You're safe if you get COVID-19. You're not healthy, but you're safe. And that language needs to change because it gives all the wrong impressions. Uh, well, all right, so here, let's go. For listener submissions, this is stuff that uh, I put out on Facebook. Hey, I don't have anything for the show. Tell me something you want to talk about. Here we go. We'll, we'll go fast on these. Uh, Matthew, in short, I'm going to shorten his question or comment. It's essentially, how do we break through the debate commission system to get third parties involved? Because the debate commission oversees the most fundamental way presidential candidates get in front of mass audiences. The, the audience for a presidential debate is insanely high. It's not Super Bowl high, but it, it gets to that neighborhood. And so the idea here being if, if someone could break through and be a third voice besides the two horrific voices we have of Republicans and Democrats, maybe we could change something. And how do we break through that commission system that seems to block and lock everyone else out? Good question. Matthew, we are a, we're such a long way of breaking the stranglehold that these two parties have on our system. And I think it's going to have to be some Someone with real means, someone with financial ability to do the marketing, to get on TV, to do, uh, to do the, the digital marketing, all the, the internet marketing, to get the, the word out with the right message, to, to get to the right polling place. Because that's, that's what happens here. The, the debate, I believe the rule the debate commission has is they will invite any candidate to a debate, who is polling at at least 15% in particular national polls. Like they've, I think they pick out like 10 or 11 polls. Like these are the ones we trust. And if you are, if you, if you get some, if someone is polling consistently at 15% or above in that poll, we'll invite them to a debate. Maybe, maybe we try, we, we, we petition them to change that number to 10%. Maybe you get it down some. But I, I'm okay with just the idea of, uh, well, well, they set the rules. The rule's 15%. Well, let's get someone to 
And so uh, I'm taking, I'll give an example here, but not the right one. Just take Michael Bloomberg for a second. Michael Bloomberg is a radical leftist. He has billions of dollars. There is no question that if he ran a third party this time, he could have gotten to 15%. He would have taken some of Trump's people. He would have taken some of Biden's people. He would have been, uh, he would have found his own base that was otherwise not affiliated with either one of them. And he could have gotten 15%. Just like Ross Perot did. Remember Ross Perot did this. Ross Perot used his own money to get the word out and he was able to get on a debate stage with George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton, and then the second time on a debate stage with Bob Dole and Bill Clinton. That's what has to happen. And I think the healthiest way for it to happen would be if someone like a Mike Bloomberg, a crazy left-winger, if he ran a, a third-party candidacy, an independent candidacy, and you took someone who found some money behind them who's an independent from the right to, to run a fourth party candidacy. That would be the way to go. So that, that's it. Uh, how, how do we break the, the stranglehold? Well, we got to find a way to get to a candidate to 15% to get them on the stage. And that costs money. It costs money to get there. And so either some powerful donors or just independently wealthy people are going to have to step up and make that happen. Kenneth wrote in and talked about something that I've talked about on the show a good bit, so I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but wanted to know about using the government to incentivize people becoming teachers, as in his idea was making college free or paying for a lot of college for people who will teach. He was apparently watching an episode of The West Wing, that old, uh, I can't remember the name of that actor who played the president in that, but that old show, um, it, it portrayed a democratic administration uh, and I think like the most romanticized version of a democratic administration. I watched a lot of it. It's an excellent show. Really well written. Aaron Sorkin is a really, he's one of the ones who's gifted at writing dialogue. The pacing of it is just really good. Um, so we, we sort of already do that to, to Kenneth's question. We have loan forgiveness programs for a lot of teachers, teachers who will teach in high needs areas like math, science, foreign language uh, that will teach special ed. We do loan forgiveness. I think we could get a little bit more aggressive with that. We could probably afford it, and it would be worth the investment. We are, we're on a topic right now where I am okay with investing. I think the, our education system is horrific and terrible and backwards, and you do get what you pay for. Right now, we are sinking money into a system that's not doing anything because the money we do sink in often goes to administrators and people who collect data uh, and reporting the federal government, and we don't, we don't attract people who were very capable to be teachers. I've given myself as the example. I'd love to be a teacher. I'm not taking the pay cut. I'm not going to do it. And so you got some folks out there who end up getting into some kind of low-level medical field, or they go out and just get into insurance sales or something, and, and they're they're capable. They would be compelling. They would be a an asset to the education of students, but they're not going to take the pay cut to go be a teacher, and that is the core of it. I don't know if we have to pay for people's colleges to do it, but we do have to pay them more to recruit better people to become teachers because you will get exactly what you pay for in an education system. Number, I can't remember the number, but Seth wrote in, he asked about the idea of theonomy, 
if you're not familiar with this theological term. In short, it is the idea that, or the question maybe, should Christians be seeking out political power to institute biblical laws? So Christians be working through political systems to put people in power who will then make the Bible the law. And my answer is no. I can be disagreed with. If you disagree with me, CoreyTruexShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruexShow at gmail.com. I think that that is a, a strategy that ends up being Christ over culture, not... And well, and Christ is over culture, but maybe that's... There's an, there's an imposition there is my point. Like, we, we should not be seeking political power to do biblical things. We want to share Bible and share spirit and spiritual truth called the gospel to change people's hearts and minds so that biblical behavior and biblical thinking is what permeates and dominates the culture, but no one is ever forced to do it. Force is one of my, one of my big things. that we, We're not for force. We're never for forcing people to do things. But by all means... We don't have to have a godless secular culture. That's not a, a guarantee of Scripture any, either. The kingdom of God can grow in the United States of America. People can be converted. Their minds can be changed. And one of the consequences of that is then laws and rules will change. But that should not be, in my opinion, the, the primary goal of the Christian is to seek out political power to impose biblical values. Glenn wrote in. This is my last one for uh, listener feedback. Wanted to know, why don't we punish men who get women pregnant and then don't take care of their kids? Why, are, why is it not a crime to get a woman pregnant, essentially? Not just essentially, but that was the question. Uh, to which my response is, the, the man is responsible for taking care of the child he spawns. That is his responsibility. We don't do a good job of that through our child care laws, or not child care, child, uh, child support laws. Like men are often derelict in that duty, and then we don't enforce that law well. So it is actually technically currently criminal to not take care of your kids. If you've been ordered by a court to remit child support, then there can be serious consequences for you. Those consequences should be harsh and dire, and that we we should do have that as a culture as one of our values. If you create a child, you must care for the child. That's your responsibility. The act of impregnation, though, that is a mutual act almost all the time. I can't treat women like they're children. can't treat women like they have no agency. Uh, If a a woman and a man decide to create a child or at least engage in the act that creates children, that is not the man's responsibility solely. That is a 50-50 responsibility. She's responsible for what she did. He's responsible for what he did. And then the only enforcement for the government to have there is that both of them are responsibly taking care of the child that they created because children are a blessing and we want to take care of them. When we come back, I have a few. I told you we're going fast today. I have a lot more. I want to talk about the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation. Uh, Ben Sass has some has said some things that got him into some kind of trouble lately. I had someone ask about basically the role of abortion in Christians voting. We'll do that and a whole lot more when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act show. (music) 
Welcome back to His Radio Talk, and welcome back to the Cora Act Show, wherever you find it. If it's on His Radio Talk, that's great. If it's over on the Anchor app or on iTunes, wherever you find podcasts, I'm grateful that you do. Thanks for joining us for the Cory Act Show. Let's get back to it, because there is a lot to do on the show this week. I got on that post, I put out there, hey, what do we want to talk about? Hannah Miller of the, the show, over the morning show, here on His Radio Talk, with it's Christian Worldview with Tony and Hannah told me about this group that's trying to get evangelicals to vote for Biden uh, as and stop being one-issue voters, or basically these people are saying, be pro-all life, not just pro-unborn life, and the more pro-all life position is over on the Biden side. I utterly disagree with that in every way, but it, it leads more broadly to something I, I see this time of year every year when it comes to Christians, abortion, and voting. There is definitely a large contingent of evangelicals that will just vote for literally anybody as long as they say they're pro-life. Is that, and all pro-life does mean is anti-abortion. There is someone even on our network, on the His Radio Talk network, I will not mention, that I admire so deeply. He's so incredibly talented. I've learned a lot from him. But that seems to be his... And that just seems, I mean, I listen to him five hours a week. It seems his take is, I, we only vote on abortion, and we are glad about that. We're so proud that the only thing we ever think about is abortion, and it decides all of our votes. He, and he even warns, maybe, not, I don't think he's warning, warning against people like me. He warns Christians. There's people trying to tell you that there's more things in the world than abortion. And there's not. There's just abortion. So here's where I've landed on that. What role should abortion play in Christians who show up to vote in elections? Here is the little pithy phrase I put together for it. Abortion is a good enough reason to never vote for a pro-choice candidate. In our context, you might say it this way. Abortion is a good enough reason to never vote for a Democrat. Abortion is a good enough reason to never vote for Joe Biden. It is our greatest national sin at the moment. We should not diminish the severity of what is happening in abortion clinics across the country. Children who can feel pain are being killed. Some children so along further enough in a development that they actually have to be dismembered, taken apart, limb by limb, to be removed from their mother's womb. The horrific nature of the act of abortion should weigh so heavily on us that it is probably the number one thing the Christian thinks about in voting on, uh, in voting on candidates. And because it is so horrific, because it is so significant, it is a good enough reason to never vote for somebody who justifies that barbaric act. It's a good enough reason to never do it. However, it's not a good enough reason to just vote for every Republican. Someone saying, hey, I'm pro-life, is not a good enough reason for me to show up for you. So, I, I, and again, here's where I am just, I'm just comfortable that person says they're pro-choice. That person says they're pro-life. All right, I got some other questions. There's some other things happening here that I got to decide on before we actually show up to vote. 
And that's what I would argue to the Christian. I can be disagreed with here, and I would be even humble about it, like other people that see it differently. But my stance, abortion is a deal breaker. If you are a pro-choice, a pro-abortion candidate, I struggle with the idea of justifying voting for that candidate. I struggle with it. I'm not outright condemning it. I don't think I have the authority to outright condemn it. I'm telling you, I struggle with that logic because abortion is very clear what that is. We know what abortion is. It is the killing of children in particular. Uh, we know we know what murder is biblically, and we know God's thoughts on children and their place in, in the world. So I can't imagine ever voting for a Democrat or a pro-choice candidate. But to Republicans, if some, I actually know there, there's one House rep in South Carolina. Oh, he's a former House rep now. He doesn't. Yeah, he's not in the house anymore. He listens to me, he told me recently. You, and sir, you have more influence than I do when it comes to people who are actually in office. Hear, hear me say this, and maybe you could pass it along. Being pro-life is not enough. Just, just being anti-abortion isn't good enough. There's, some other, there's other things you have to be. It's a deal breaker to go the other way, but it doesn't mean I'm locked in. And I don't think the Christian should be locked in. I think that leads to a type of I think it leads to a type of being a hostage. Like you're a hostage of the GOP. You're a hostage of Republicans if it is all that matters and you don't worry about anything else. Uh, so Hannah, thank you for posting that. And that is my response. What else? Okay. Uh, then I got asked by some people about Amy Coney Barrett. I have positive things and then one caution. Here, I'll give you my one caution first, and then I'm probably going to gush a little bit about her performance. I, I think she's done great. I thought she acquitted herself incredibly well. She's obviously incredibly knowledgeable. She's qualified. She should be on the court. The vote, I don't even know why we're waiting on October 26th. Let's go ahead and vote. Get it done. Get her on the court. That's where I stand. Now, the... The thing some folks on my side are doing, where we call her ACB, like we're even doing the thing that the left did with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, calling her RGB, and she got called the notorious RGB, and then you write books about her and do documentaries about her and do action figures and put put that notorious RBG on t-shirts, you make memes about her like she's a superhero. I see some people on my side doing that too. Some of those memes are fun. They're funny. But this is one of the poisonous parts of our politics, is when we lionize and turn into heroes, just normal people. Amy Coney Barrett isn't your savior. She's, she's just a great judge, okay? She shouldn't be a celebrity. Very genuinely, a lot of you should forget she exists, right? She goes on, she gets confirmed, she does her job. And there's, a, there's people like me with the memories that I have, and I can name you all of the justices of the Supreme Court at any given time. But for the average American, when you ask, hey, who are the nine Supreme Court justices? Because government shouldn't be such a big part of our lives, some large part of Americans should go, uh, yeah, there's Chief Justice Roberts, right? There's that guy, and um, Sotomayor is there. She's got a funny name, and so I remember that one. It's really distinct. Uh, and then it's significant. Clarence Thomas is there, and then... Um, uh, I, you know, I can't remember anymore. That, that should probably be the role. Let's, let's stop lionizing and turning people into celebrities, people who are public servants, 
They're supposed to be in the government. They're not supposed to have action figures based on them. That's a really bad part of our politics. The, it's what the left did with Barack Obama. They turned him into, into a celebrity. I think it's an arguable that was bad for our culture. Let's not do that with Amy Coney Barrett. With that said, put her on the court right now. She is arguing so effectively for two primary points about the wall that I think are really, really important. So she argues well for textualism and constitutionalism, or textualism and originalism. That, that's the only fair and logical way to interpret law. You take the law as it was written, the meaning of the words at the time they were written, and you interpret the law based on that. And if the law needs updating which happens, well, that's Congress's job. It's not the legislature's job. It's Congress is a one. A previous Congress is the one who wrote a law. It's not the judiciary's job to then fix a law. And what's bothersome, because we had quite a few Democratic senators essentially trying to make the argument that, or I think it was even Maisie Hirono in particular, was trying to argue that a judge should take into account the consequences of their decision. And they kept doing that with healthcare. Like if you overturn the Affordable Care Act or some part of it, here's a consequence or a potential consequence of you doing that. I want to be really clear. No judge should ever think about that. That's not their job. Their job is to decide, is this constitutional? Does this violate someone's rights? Does this follow the text of the law, the structures we've been given. And if there is a negative consequence to someone because the judge made a correct decision about the law, that goes back to the legislature. The legislature who wrote the unconstitutional law has now created a new problem because they wrote an unconstitutional law. They have to go back and fix it. This is called consequentialism or even gets towards some kind of ends justify the means. It should even be a lesson in our own lives that that's not how we make decisions. We don't make decisions based on solely or even firstly, what's the consequence of this? We ask ourselves, what's right? What's wrong? What should I do? And what the consequences are, what we'll deal with. And that's something that it seems to be the folks on the left side of this legal debate don't, don't quite get. Uh, they, they think the court is supposed to be a super legislature. The stuff that we can't get Congress to do, well, let's just get the courts to do it. And that's not their job. And Amy, Amy Coney Barrett did a good job of explaining that law is not outcome-driven. It's true and false-driven. It's right and wrong-driven. That's what justice is. Justice is blind. It's even blind to the idea of there's consequences for someone's health care policy if we do the right thing. And then it's Congress's job, the legislature's job, to come back around and address whatever they have created with their original problem. I've, I want to stop there and just explain with clarity, because they talked about healthcare so much, why exactly the ACA is unconstitutional, the Affordable Care Act, but we're, maybe I'll do that another time, because there was a couple more notes I wanted to get to. The, uh, the bias of just being someone on the right became really clear during that hearing, because Amy Coney Barrett had this moment where she said to, I think it might have been Kamala Harris, where when it, there, there seemed to be this accusation that you're just going to do whatever Antonin Scalia did. You're going to ask yourself the question, what would Antonin Scalia do? And then just go do it. And she had a good moment where she said, I have my own mind. 
And if she were a left winger, if a woman had said that in a Senate hearing to somebody, that becomes a t-shirt that ends up on memes. It goes on, on a hat and you go sell merch off of it. I have my own mind. Some woman empowered saying that. That happens all the time for folks on the left. I mean, Kamala Harris even planned one out during the debate, uh, Democratic primary debate, where she got the line, I was that little girl, the little girl who got busted into school, and she immediately started selling I was that little girl merch. And so there's an obvious bias from that hearing with that great line she had that no one took, uh, uh, I guess, notice of. To others, there was talk, there always is during these hearings, about trying to put cameras in the Supreme Court. And I want to revisit my take on that. I am glad we don't have cameras in the Supreme Court. I'm glad we can't watch them. I also want to take cameras out of Congress. That's a fairly new thing. It only happened in the late 90s, actually new, actually mid-90s. Newt Gingrich really is the one who popularized using cameras in Congress as a way to make yourself popular, to grandstand, to fundraise. And it helped Newt. I mean, the contract with America and then having cameras in Congress where you could be dramatic and get attention for yourself is why there was a 1994 Republican wave. But it's also given this perverse incentive to just be a performer, to get on camera. Don't try to do the right thing, but just get on camera and get attention. So I am for taking the cameras out. We're, yeah, we're going to miss, I mean, people like Trey Gowdy doing stuff that might entertain you, but politics should not be entertainment. It is for the good of the people. And if we take the drama out of it and the incentive to be dramatic, you're going to get better results from it. And I've, I've almost run totally out of time. So I'm gonna, here's what I'm going to do. I have uh, something from a guy named Doug Wilson I want to respond to. He talks about the ethics of voting for Trump. And then I have something from Ben Sass I want to do. And I'm not going to save it for next week. So radio listeners, I'm going, I'm going to do some bonus content. So go find the Corey Truax Show wherever you find podcasts. I have a very odd name, so it's easy to find. Find the Corey Truax Show. While you're there, I would be honored if you would subscribe to the podcast, write a review, rate the podcast. It helps other people find it podcast listeners just stick around we're going to do that all right now i'll be back with another new edition of the Corey true show next week until then everybody peace and love hi podcasters thanks for sticking around i really just want to do a couple more things and get them off of the prep sheet plus they'll be fun to do so not just a not just a chore but there's some some joy and some fun to do it so i think i was finished with oh yeah there was one other thing with the with the barrett nomination the senator from rhode island sheldon whitehouse from what I understand of people who watched it, he had some kind of either whiteboard or slides that he was showing to illustrate these points. And I was actually in Wisconsin at the time driving around. I, I was listening to most of the uh, confirmations as I, as I drove from event to event. And so I never saw the visual aids, but there was obviously some thoughts about conspiracy theory. It seemed like he was talking conspiracy theory type language regarding some Supreme Court cases. And so I went back and looked and I actually am a little intrigued by one of the points he was making. He asked Amy Coney Barrett, would you meet privately with litigants in a case? So you're about to hear a case. Would you meet privately with the people who are involved in arguing that case? And of course she said, no, it would be inappropriate. And then he makes this point that well, th there's a lot of amicus briefs, so they're I, I think the plural of that is amici or amici briefs. Uh, but anyway, a, a lot of friend of the court briefs. So not directly people arguing the case, but people who have an interest in the case making arguments in on one side or the other and submitting those to the court. 
and in some in some cases, that those arguments or resources that those amicus briefs, those other parties that are interested in the case, they bring up some resources or information that maybe the actual litigants don't have. And so he asks the question, would you, uh, would you even know? I mean, he, this is where he's trying to get. Would you even know if you were talking to someone who was involved in an amicus brief? Someone who files a, a brief, an argument on behalf of one side or the other, you don't actually have to disclose the funding or the origin of this argument. You have to disclose who actually files it, but we don't know anything about the people sometimes who file them and who's behind them. So would you even know if you're being influenced personally by someone who has an interest in a case before you? And he, she, didn't get, she didn't give an answer because he wasn't really asking a question. He was making a point about the process, that maybe we should rethink the process. And I thought that was actually quite interesting because we do, we do have that situation where in politics, there's a great deal of financial disclosure we know who's giving what, but at the court, we don't really know. I don't think we have a, a problem. I don't think we have a crooked court system by any stretch because of this, but there is some kind of oddity there that you can be providing to the Supreme Court argumentation and material, but not know fully the origins of the, of why someone's doing that and who they are. So, it started quite weird in that point, but I'm intrigued by where he's going with that and if anything happens. Okay, now to Doug Wilson. Doug Wilson is apparently someone with a larger following than I am. He's out west somewhere, Montana, Wyoming, the Dakotas, big sky country somewhere, and has a bit of an internet following, and he talks about a lot of the same things I do. I've only listened to him for like 20 minutes of my life now, so I, I shouldn't judge. I, I'm not a, not a fan of him stylistically, but he recently put out a, a blog that was called Seven Justifications for the Christian to Vote for Donald Trump. And I want to talk about it really quickly. Thanks to Ross, who sent it over to me, and, and Mark, who also uh, co- commented on it. Although, Also, by the way, if you're in Pickens, South Carolina, you're out that direction, uh, you should look, look up Ross on, on Facebook. He's one of my friends. And take a look at, uh, at their church. I think it's Crescent Hill. Uh, so if you're looking for a church out in the Pickens area. All right, so here's Doug Wilson says he has seven arguments for the Christian to vote for Donald Trump. He doesn't actually make seven arguments, uh, which is one of, like, this is one of my pet peeves. Like, there was almost some AD, ADD to his writing and or to, to, his, to his thought flow where he, he didn't write down the seven points and he just started free-flowing. Free but I want to give you his, his arguments and then respond to them. I'll, I'll save that. All right, so his, his first argument, and really his only argument, is voting is a tactic, not a sacrament. He makes that really clear for his first overarching point. Voting is a tactic, not a sacrament. So there's not anything you're doing of, I guess, religious or spiritual import when you're doing voting. It's just a tactic about life. It's not a sacrament. I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable with that language for this reason. I agree it's not a sacrament. We know what the sacraments are. The sacraments are the Lord's table, it's baptism. We know the sacraments. So voting is not a sacrament. Doug Wilson is correct. But it, it's that kind of language that Nancy Piercy responds to in Total Truth. It's part of the Christian worldview that we don't have a sacred, a, a sacred secular divide. We recognize that whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so I, I understand what he's saying. It's a tactic, not a sacrament. That's denotatively true. I want to be clear. Those words in that order are true. 
I want to make sure that we then add on there. Yes, that is true. And don't let that become this idea of, uh, I have part of my life where I live by Christian values. And then I have other part of my life that I just do uh, something and ends justify the means pragmatism. So I want to be careful on that. But denotatively, yeah, that's true. Voting's a tactic, not a sacrament. And then here's the overarching theme from there. There, there was plenty of reason not to vote for Donald Trump for the Christian in 2016. It was primarily this: there's no reason to believe him. You can't count on him. He says he's going to defend religious liberty. You have no reason to believe he's going to do that because he never has. It's never been part of his values. He says he's going to nominate good judges, but there's no reason to believe that. He's never said that. And even in this campaign, he said he would think about nominating his sister, who's a rabid left-winger. There is no reason to think he's going to keep any of these promises because he's never kept any promises in his life. He's just been this, this self-absorbed narcissist his whole life. There's no reason to think about voting for him. And that's where Doug Wilson was, was in 2016. There, he, he didn't vote for Donald Trump because I can't trust any of this stuff. Why would I? And so what he's saying now is what he's proven, what Donald Trump has proven, is you can count on him. He has your interest at heart even if he doesn't believe any of the stuff. He will defend your religious liberty. He does nominate great justices. He does lower, well, he lowers taxes, but he will not cut spending for anything, will he? God, we just keep running giant deficits. These are deficits blowing Obama out of the water now. Part of that is COVID, obviously. And so this is his argument. Now you can count on him to do those things that he pledges to do. He's shown that he will he, he will follow through. And then his final argument there is, and then the predations of the left. He doesn't use the word predations. It's one of my favorite words. Uh, that the left is predatory. They are coming for you. They want your stuff. They want your liberty. They want to tell you what to do and rule over your life. Uh, I don't mind saying that of the left. There are liberals that are not that way. But the left is power-hungry to tell you all, tell us all exactly what to do. We must be like them, think like them, and say the words they want. They are predatory in nature. And his argument is the other side is bad, and therefore here is your, your better of the two options. You, you know that a lot of that doesn't resonate with me because I, I have no pragmatism or consequentialism uh, for, for a lot of these things. But I, I do want to say this to his argument. Where you have that kind of clear-eyed recognition of of who the president is and it's you're thinking of your vote tact- tactically I wouldn't argue against it at all like if Doug Wilson and I were in a room and he said all that stuff to me and he said and that's why I'm voting for Donald Trump I would go oh that makes sense okay cool you you do that you do that the because even in the uh, the tone of his of that podcast the the tone wasn't that there's a joyous occasion like MAGA MAGA, go Trump. No, there wasn't that. That is what ends up being the problem. The problem is turning the guy into a celebrity, that he's our savior, he's saving the world, there's no one like him, and we gotta you just gotta support him because he's the best. Where voting is a tactic and not a sacrament, awesome. Well, I've I've also been needing everyone to draw this line. Voting is also not supporting. So where someone is voting and then not su- supporting in a way that shows all kinds of approval for stuff there shouldn't be approval for and defending things that shouldn't be defended, that's, that's the problem. So to Doug Wilson's argument uh, and to Ross who sent it over, I'm to- I think that's to- totally well argued even if he didn't give seven points and uh, where Christians are landing there, I t- totally get it. I-, I don't land there, but I 100% 
understand. It makes total sense to me. All right, here's the last thing I want to do on the show. If I were a member of Congress, Ben Sass, I would be I would be Ben Sass, the senator from Nebraska. He is uh, what do the what do the kids say? He's my spirit animal. Or in Harry Potter, what do you get? A Patronus? He's my Patronus. If I were a member of Congress, of the 535 member who's, members who serve, I would be Ben Sass. If there was a, a fantasy draft and we were going to have fantasy Congress like we had fantasy football in the first round, I would be looking for Ben Sass. So over Ted Cruz, over Mike Lee, Ben Sass is my favorite. And Ben Sass got a question on a call with supporters where he talked a lot of Trump and it got him into some trouble. And so I want to play the entire call for you. It's nine minutes, so this is going to be a while because I'm going to stop and start along the way and make some points. Uh, so that'll be the last thing we do today. Uh, here is Senator Ben Sass on a call with supporters. I think, like a lot of Nebraskans, I'm trying to understand your relationship with the president. Um, why do you have to criticize him so much? So I have to stop immediately just on the question. This is one of the reasons our politics is broken. Not, hey, where do you stand on the fact that our debt's going crazy even before COVID or... Uh, on making sure that we don't have court packing or adding states or the, sec the Second Amendment uh, or any given piece of, of legislation or an idea. It's, what about this person that I love? What's your relationship to this human, this personality? That shows broken brain. That you're not asking about policy, but asking about a relationship to a politician and really for this person, some figure that they've come to have a, such an affection for that it's quite unhealthy. So that's this woman's question. What's your relationship to the president? Uh, sure. So uh, that is a very fair question. And I guess I, I kind of think about it like this. Um, I think we should distinguish between policy agreement and policy disagreement, and then also long-term political implications as well. So I've worked hard uh, to develop a good working relationship with the president over the last three and a half years. I obviously campaigned for a lot of other people in the 2016 cycle, um, but Donald Trump is our president now, so I've worked hard to develop a good relationship with him. He's got a hard job, and we're called to pray for our leaders, so that's what we do regularly at the breakfast table at our house is we pray for the president um, and, and the first lady and for Vice President Pence in their callings. Um, and there are obviously a number of issue areas where President Trump and I have policy alignment now, or maybe a better way to put it is where the president has now adopted traditionally Republican positions um, that he used to reject for the majority of his life when he was funding Democratic candidates. Really important point for me, like in terms of my antip antipathy towards the president, is, yeah, he's, he's come around where he has done a bunch of stuff that I would, I'm, I'm so appreciative of. Mostly economics, we're talking deregulation, particularly environmental deregulation, tax cuts, some of the, of the foreign policy, certainly what he's uh, done in the Middle East in terms of uh, trying to create more a ground on which to have peace in the, in the Middle East or more of it, and, uh, and, and ha having uh, a, an attitude with an attitude of American dominance. This is this is good for the world. When America is dominant, the world is more stable. Now, there's some other things he's done, foreign policy, that destabilize. But uh, those are the, the the president came around to these positions if he even actually now holds them. And that's the 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 key, I think, for this to answer this question is why aren't you asking him his relationship to me? I've been the one saying these things forever. He's the one that like 20 minutes ago decided to back these thoughts and policies. Why don't you ask his relationship to me instead of the other way around? I'll let Ben Sass keep going.
So, um, for example, one of the places where he's changed, as we were just mentioning uh, to the last questioner, is I think he's nominated truly great judges, and I've worked with him on that. In fact, I, I went on the Judiciary Committee after he was elected um, explicitly to advocate for the kind of originalists and constitutionalists uh, that he had put on his list and that he had agreed to nominate. I'm the first Nebraskan on the Judiciary Committee in, uh, I think, 46 years. I'm 48 years old, and I'm the first Nebraskan on the committee since the mid-'70s. So there are definitely places where we agree. But uh, as your question uh, says, there are obviously a lot of places where he and I differ as well. Um, and these aren't just mere policy issues. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not at all apologetic for having fought for my values against his in places where I think his um, are deficient, not just for, for a Republican, but for an American. So the, the way he kisses dictators' butts, I mean, the way he um, ignores that the Uyghurs are in literal concentration camps in Xinjiang right now. He hasn't lifted a a finger on behalf of the Hong Kongers. Are all those legitimate or not? He he does treat Kim Kim Jong Un or ill, whichever one's in charge now. He he treats him well. He he does say nice things about Vladimir Putin, not because of some kind of Russian collusion. All that is garbage, but because uh, as the uh, the old thing of in athletics that goes, uh, real recognize real, and. Trump has that kind of personality where those are the kinds of places he would rather be ruling. And so I, isn't, isn't that a legitimate criticism? Hey, let's, let's not say nice things about Vladimir Putin and about Kim Jong-un. And even if you say, well, that's just tactic, it's, it's strategy. Okay, well, it's immoral tactics and it's an immoral strategy. So let's not do those tactics and strategy. And the fact that he, he doesn't talk about the, the, what's going on with China with the Uyghurs, uh, with those concentration camps. Like what... There, there's some legitimate criticism there, at least, and that shouldn't be controversial to say. You can say, hey, here's all the good stuff, and here's some bad stuff, too. I mean, he and I have a very different foreign policy. It isn't just that he fails to lead our allies. It's that we, the United States now regularly sells out our allies under his leadership. The way he treats women and spends like a, a drunken sailor, the ways I criticize President Obama for that kind of spending, I criticize President Trump for as well. He- I wish That's one that bothers me a ton, even before COVID. Forget COVID. We had, I think, inarguably, the best about 30 months or so of growth in the history of the United States of America, even outstripping some of the numbers from the roaring 20s. We had an incredible economic growth from, let's go, mid-2017 up until basically COVID happened. We were just booming. Tax revenue was booming. Even though there was a tax cut, we actually had more revenue coming in because more economic activity was happening. But the debt and the deficit was blowing out Obama's debts and deficit. And this, this was during a time, if you remember, the President of the United States was saying, right now is the time to borrow. Interest rates are so low, we should be borrowing. I remember making the, the point all the time that our debt and deficits were out of control under Obama. And I, all I want, people like Ben Sass want, we just want consistency. We just want to be able to say all the things that are true. And one of the things that are true is, Hey, we should probably stop spending money like we are. He mocks um, evangelicals behind closed doors. His, his family has treated the presidency like a business opportunity. He's flirted with white supremacists. I mean, the, the places where we differed on COVID. He, at the- uh, I don't know about two of those. Treated the presidency like a business opportunity. I'm not, sh- I'm not sure the evidence of that. And so I would need to be... I would need to have that argued to me before I said the president has treated the, the presidency like a business opportunity. So that's one. I'm not saying it's not true, but I'm saying I have no evidence. 
The other one he said there that I, I don't like is the flirting with white supremacy. I don't think that's what he's done. I, the, the David Duke thing near the beginning, uh, back, back in the campaign, this is 2016, where he's pretending to not know who David Duke is. That's as close as flirting with white supremacy as he's gone. So for I, I love Ben Sass, but I think those two criticisms, I think you can pull back on those because there's not quite enough evidence to establish them. At the beginning of the COVID crisis, he refused to treat it seriously for months. He treated it like a news cycle by news cycle PR crisis rather than a multi-year public health challenge, which is what it is. And now, I mean, in his partial defense here, I think that lots of the news media has pretended that COVID is literally the, the first public health crisis ever and somehow it's Donald Trump's fault. That's not true. They just wanted to use it against him. Um, but the reality is that he careened from curb to curb. First, he ignored COVID and, and then he went into full economic shutdown down mode. Um, he, he was the one who said 10 to 14 days of shutdown would fix this. And that was always wrong. I mean, and so I, I don't think the way he's led through COVID has been reasonable or responsible. Um, okay. So a couple things I, I struggle with, with criticizing leadership around COVID because no one had any practice and no one knew what they were doing. Literally no politician who's in office at all anywhere. No governor, mayor, county council member, congressman, president, nobody anywhere ran for office thinking, I need to run for office because I'm the best for managing a pandemic. I will have the best abilities for that. No one no one knew. And so I, I have no criticism of the president around COVID. And I don't like criticizing, criticizing some of like the Democratic governors around COVID because no one, no one really knew what to do. We can then talk about the wisdom of doing things like shutdown and and I, I was, uh, we're not going to do it. I was, I think we definitely could have handled COVID better, but of course I'm saying that it's October. It happened and it came upon us in February and March and I didn't know anything then. And now I know some stuff. And so that's changed how I would have handled it in the end. Um, or right. And so these are, these are some of the important policy or, or sort of leadership places where we differed stuff, stuff we don't see eye to eye on. And I think that it's my duty to level with Nebraskans even though I recognize that a lot of our voters in Nebraska uh, are, are Trumpier than I am, and they sometimes get frustrated with me. Um, but I also think voters have, have told me the most common thing I hear uh, from Nebraskans is they have a very mixed perspective on the president. They think he does some stuff well, and they think he does some stuff poorly. And the truth of the matter is, I think he's done some stuff well and some poorly. And so I've been honest about that. Um, but those are, those are kind of policy and leadership issues. I think it's also worth, for those of us who, who care about the party of Lincoln and Reagan, we should distinguish between policy and politics, because my dissents um, from President Trump are not only about policy, but it's also a prudential question or a political question about whether or not he's ultimately driving the country further to the left. Now, this is where we're getting something very important. We, we have this very poisonous thing that a lot of people did, left and right. They made Donald Trump the North Star. He is morality itself, or he is immorality itself. He is the epitome of good or the epitome of evil. He is, he is the standard by which we measure all things. And so there's implications to that. Because he, I'm not saying this as a morbid thing, I'm just saying as a reality, he'll die soon. He's an old man. He's very unhealthy. And what do you do with your politics after that? What does anybody believe? Even folks on the left, do you guys believe anything or you just hate Donald Trump? On folks, folks, on the, folks on the right or the Trumpist right, do you believe anything or you just love this guy? 
And so there is some questions now about the politics, the what the winning of elections or not, the philosophical effect you have on a country to, to consider. And I think it's been there's been a failure to consider. The fact that Donald Trump has repulsed some people. He repulses me, but I'm a rational enough human being to organize my thoughts enough. But you repulse people 30 and under enough, then what, what do you do 20 years from now? When you, rep- when you connect conservative ideas to a repulsive figure, well, what, what are you, what's, what's the price you're going to have to pay for that in the end? You know, I, I, uh, one piece of evidence for this. I made the assumption that when the president and Biden did their dueling town halls, one on NBC, one on ABC, I assumed Donald Trump would blow Biden away in the ratings because he's definitely the more interesting and more charismatic character. And then I got the ratings back, and Biden beat him out by a little bit. He had a little bit of a better rating, which made me think that I can't prove this. I'm trying to interpret data. My thought was, the country's exhausted of this guy. He's got his fan base, but a lot of folks are just exhausted by him. And so when you have that implication, well, what are you doing by connecting a party, Republican Party, that can be a vehicle for good things, or connecting conservative ideas like limited government, religious liberty, originalist judges, when you connect those good ideas to this personality, are you hurting yourself going forward? Are you hurting your electoral chances? We have to look at what happened in 2018. You have democratic victories in a lot of, well, you got to call it a pretty big democratic victory in 2018. There is a consequence to Trumpism, like because he's not the center of the universe for all time. Sooner than you realize, he'll be gone. And what are the consequences of him? And that's what Assass is getting into. Because that's what I think is ultimately going to happen because of Donald Trump. This has been my fear um, for five years. It's why I campaigned for everybody not named Trump in, in 2016. And that is because I think folks have have regularly misunderstood the meaning of 2016. Donald Trump didn't win the presidency um, because America actually wants more reality TV, round-the-clock, stupid political obsessions. I, I just don't think that that's what my neighbors want. It's not what I hear when I travel the state. I've spent lots of the of the last year um, on a campaign bus, and when you listen to Nebraskans, they don't really want more rage tweeting um, as a new form of entertainment. I think the overwhelming reason that President Trump won in 2016 was simply because Hillary Clinton was literally the most unpopular candidate in the history of polling. Uh, We've we've had polls going back uh, about 85 years, and Hillary Clinton is by far the worst presidential candidate America has ever had, general election president. Fact check true, by the way. This is one of my favorite stats on this. Mitt Romney won more votes in Wisconsin than Donald Trump did. So Mitt Romney loses Wisconsin to Obama, Trump wins Wisconsin to Hillary. All that says is Hillary Clinton is terrible. Says nothing good about Donald Trump. That is, uh, Donald Trump would have lost to Mitt Romney, who lost the state. This is, it was a referendum on Hillary Clinton. And so if people thought it was a big endorsement of Trumpism, they missed the meaning of that election. 
presidential candidate. And I think that's why President Trump won, not because he laid out a constructive vision of the country that Americans united around. And so I, I think it's always been imprudent for my party, again, as I, as I mentioned, calling it the, the party of Lincoln and Reagan. Those are the heights of American history. It has always been imprudent for our party um, to try to tie itself to a Trumpian brand. And that's Isn't that just demonstrably true? Would you, when you're marketing this thing for long term, stop thinking about this moment. Everyone's living in this moment as if there's not going to be a year 2040 and there's going to be elections then that we have to, and, and there's not being people formed right now around their politics and what's happening. Everyone's living in this moment, not thinking about the future. That doesn't it resonate more to be the party of Lincoln, the party of Reagan, the party of the, the party of the Union, the party of anti-slavery, the party of mourning in America, American resurgence? Isn't that the better thing than whatever this is? Isn't that the better the better vision to give for long term uh, for, for long term political purposes? That's what I've been worried about for five years, and so for for months as I've been campaigning. Uh, over the end of 2019 and all of 2020 again, I've been straight with Nebraskans that I'm worried that if President Trump loses, as looks likely, um, that he's going to take the Senate down with him. And if conservatives lose the Senate, here's what progressives are going to try to do. They're, they're going to fracture the, the deliberative structure of the Senate. That's what blowing up the filibuster means. And that's the whole ballgame. They're going to add states. They're going to pack the Supreme Court. And that puts religious liberty and the broader First Amendment at risk. And that's the heart of who we are as Americans, is people who understand that government doesn't give us our rights. God gives us our rights via nature. And government is just our shared project to secure those things. And Donald Trump doesn't steward that. He doesn't do storytelling to the next generation. And now Senate Democrats, if they get to a supermajority that they can end the filibuster, I'm worried um, that some of the most you know, terrible nuttiness that we see happening on campus will get imported into our jurisprudence. That's what I'm first concerned about, too. Now that we're in the, the home stretch of this thing, the Senate is everything at this point. If you have some extra dollars... I'm not saying that the presidential race is over. It doesn't look good, but I am telling you there is still a chance for some ticket split, ticket splitting where, you, where Republicans keep the Senate that can protect the country from the predations, the predatory nature of the left. And so if you got some extra dollars that you can spare, Joni Ernst could use it in Iowa. That's a seat Republicans need to keep. Tom Tillis could use it in North Carolina. He's going, he's running slightly ahead. I think he's going to win it, but he could certainly, he could use that 10 bucks. Like there's, there's something to be argued here for keeping the Senate. Uh, the guy I can't remember, uh, Cory Gardner, could use some help out in Colorado. There's it, Just swallow hard and give some money to Susan Collins in Maine because the if she loses that seat, enough Republicans lose seats, then you are talking something close to unfettered access to do the wildest, most destructive leftist things. And that's partly connecting here to the Trump stuff is there is a broader consequence to the things he does and his behavior that could cost us a lot. Senate, the Senate now, is probably the best bulwark against those predations. And that's that would be a terrible remaking of America. And so from, from where I sit as one of the most conservative guys in the U.S. Senate, I'm now looking at the possibility of a, of a Republican bloodbath in the Senate. And that's why I've never been on the Trump train. It's why I didn't um, agree to serve on his re-election committee, and it's why I'm not campaigning for him, because I spend all my time um, thinking about the one political question that's most central next month, which is holding the U.S. Senate.
if if we don't, I'll, I'll pull up and get back to questions here, Tyler. But I, I just think if we don't um, retain the Senate, there's a very good chance that 10 years from now we're going to have a Venezuela-like, you know, dozens of members of the Supreme Court. You can imagine 30, 40 people on the Supreme Court at some point. And when, when all of our allies in the Pacific have sided with China because Trump's isolationism was so weak um, that our allies began to doubt for the first time since World War II whether they could trust in U.S. strength and U.S. will and U.S. courage and U.S. virtue and values. If young people become permanent Democrats because they've just been repulsed um, by the, the obsessive nature of our politics, or if, if women who, who were willing to still vote with the Republican Party on 2016 um, decide that they need to turn away from this party permanently in the future, the debate is not going to be, you know, Ben's asked, why were you so mean to Donald Trump? It's going to be, what the heck were any of us thinking um, that selling a TV-obsessed, narcissistic individual to the American people was a good idea? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. One worth asking and one worth all of us answering, especially on the political right. There's only about a minute of that left, actually a little bit less. I'm going to cut it there because we're now on what is probably going to be the longest episode of the Corey Act show ever. Uh, hey, thanks for listening. I am grateful that you give all this time to the show. If you share the show, I would be honored. Tell someone about it if you would be so kind. And I'll be back with a hopefully shorter episode of the Corey Act show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.